0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, King Jesus, Studying the Life and Work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. All
0: right, well, you can open up your Bibles or your app to the book of Mark. We have been studying the book of Mark now uh, for the past five months, and we have, we've been learning that most of us, have an idea of Jesus in our minds that's not accurate to what the Bible, how the Bible depicts Jesus. The, the, the Jesus that the scriptures reveal to us is far different from the Jesus we live with most of the time in our minds. And that's a great problem because a Jesus that is made up, or as Sam said so poignantly last week, a uh, Build-A-Bear Jesus that's kind of concocted according to our standards and sensibilities is powerless to change us. Think about this. Here's the problem. If you build a Jesus in in your image, if you build a Jesus according to your own likeness, well, of course, that Jesus will never confront you because he's built according to your image, right? So if you build a Jesus that hates all the people that you hate, he's never gonna confront you for hating people, right? Because he's built into your image and not into the image of who he actually is. And many of us have been living with this make-believe Jesus for years. And it's my prayer that week after week, the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, would be getting more and more clear to us. I'm gonna scoot out a little bit. Because the real Jesus has real power to actually change us. He has the power to fill us with wonder. He has the power to fill us with awe. He has the power to move us to live a life of joy and worship and service to him that is actually attractive to other people. Only the real Jesus can do that. All right, little make-believe Jesus can't do that. But let me warn you, as I've said before, and if this is your first time here gathering with us this morning, the real Jesus is offensive. We've already said in weeks past that if you haven't been offended by Jesus, then you haven't encountered the real Jesus. And in Mark chapter 7, what we're going to be studying specifically over these next two weeks, because this is kind of part one to a two-part series, let's say. Part one to a two-part sermon, okay? Uh, What Mark likes to do is he likes to work with these sandwich things. So he introduces a topic, then he uses something to help us explain that topic, and then he comes back with something else and he sandwiches it together uh, behind the, the, the statement that makes sense. So tomorrow we're going to be seeing part two of this. And this chapter, chapter seven, in these next two weeks, I think what we're gonna, I think this is the most offensive thing Jesus has ever said. Okay? These next two weeks are the most shocking, the most revolutionary, the most offensive things Jesus ever said or did. Now, just so we know, Jesus doesn't offend just for shock value. He doesn't offend just for the sake of being offensive. Jesus, he wounds to heal, okay? He's like a surgeon who cuts us, he only cuts us open to to go to work on something that has went wrong, right? That's what a surgeon does, a good surgeon, and that's what Jesus does. So today we're going to see that he's going to cut us to heal us. So let me warn you, today's text is going to probably, most likely, offend you. Um, It's already offended me. It's already cut me open. It's already wounded me, all right? All week long, I've been wrestling with this. But if you listen to it, and if you hear it, and you hear it coming from a master surgeon who has your ultimate good in mind, it might just change your life. If you can hear this this morning from a surgeon, it might just change your life. And I'm serious about that. Today's passage is one of the most revolutionary passages in the whole New Testament. It's been one of the most influential and life-changing texts in my own life. It's a foundational passage for our church, for what we do and how we do things around here. And you're really never going to understand Jesus or you're never going to understand the gospel, or you're never going to uh, really experience the fullness, the freedom, and the joy that the gospel brings, or the gospel can bring, if you don't understand the problem today, okay? If you don't understand this text today, this offensive (laughs) passage is critical for us to actually experiencing joy and worship and understanding the gospel. It's that important. And the whole thing has to revolve around this question, okay? What is it, that messes us up, right? What is it that messes up our relationship with God? What is it that, uh, that kind of brings this disconnection? Do, do we ever feel disconnected from God? Do we ever feel distant? Do we ever feel like there's something not right in my life? There's something not right in my relationship with God. Do we ever feel this big disconnect? Today, Jesus is going to show us why that is the case, And what needs to happen to repair that relationship that we have with God. And before we get going, I'm going to say it again. The diagnosis is worse than you thought. (laughs) Encouraging. The diagnosis is worse than you thought. But if you listen and if you heed and if you accept the diagnosis, you're going to find out that the remedy is better than you ever imagined. Okay? So the diagnosis is worse than you thought. But if you accept it and you believe it, the remedy is better than you ever imagined, okay? Now, we're going to get to jump in it. We've got a lot of way, long way to go, so I want us to follow along and go through this. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. Here we go. And this is what we do at Sacred City. If you're new here, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, um, and we study them together. So that's what we're doing. We're in chapter 7, verse 1. Um, now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, no, stop, Pharisees, religious leaders, scribes, religious leaders, these are very moral, very upright, very, uh, you know, conservative type people. They've traveled for miles to come and check out Jesus, see what Jesus is teaching. Here we go. Let's keep reading. Verse two, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. All right, now, in order for us to see what's going on in this passage, we've got to understand uh, what it means to de- be defiled. Now, that is not a word you use very often these days, right? Don't touch that cup, it's defiled, right? Or don't talk to that person, they're defiled. That We don't use that kind of language. So it's important for us to really get into this context and understand what is going on, right? What does it mean to be defiled? Now, we don't use that word, but listen, The principle is still true. The principle is still the same and the implications of the principle still reverberate today. We still believe this kind of stuff today. When we, we, when we read the word defiled, it means this, a person has been made unfit to be near God. That's what defiled means. They're unusable. They, They can't come into the presence of God. They're unfit to be in the presence of God. Now, I'm going to use a very imperfect illustration here, okay? What do you do before an important meeting? What do you do uh, maybe on the first date, right? You, 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 you get this first date, and hopefully it's like an in-person thing. Maybe, you know, you you've signed up online or whatever, and you're meeting this person now for the first time. What do you do? Now, most now we know this. I doubt anybody rolls out of bed, Right? Hops on their scooter, drives to the first date, right? What do we do? It's, it's, it's simple, right? What do we do when we go to this, you know, we're being interviewed by a new prospective employer. What do we do? We wash, right? We clean ourselves up, right? You take an extra long shower, right? It takes you an hour to get ready for that first date or it takes you an hour to get ready for that interview. Why? Why? You get in there, you look in the mirror, you make sure your facial hair is looking good if you've got it, Right? Ladies, or it's gone. <laughs> right? You make sure your outfit is on point, right? You're probably checking yourself out in the mirror before you leave. You're probably checking yourself out several times in the mirror before you leave. You're popping a few breath mints, right? You're brushing your teeth extra long. Hair's looking good. Outfit is clean and looking nice. Now, why are you doing all this stuff? Why do you do all these things? Because you don't want to be unclean, right? You don't want to go to the interview with something hanging off your face or something in your teeth or a wrinkled up shirt. Why? Because that's going to project something about you, right? That's going to tell them something about you. We don't want to be defiled, we're going to spray perfume on and make sure we have deodorant because we don't want someone else to think that we're unclean. We don't want to be rejected by someone because of our uncleannesses, right? And we know that cleanness matters even in human relationships. And that cleanness, it doesn't just go, uh, it doesn't just include what we look and how we dress, but that clean what we say. There's a comedian that Jim Gaffigan, he's one of my favorite comedians and he's coming out with his own show. And he released the first episode last night online. And it's a, it was a hilarious episode and the whole episode is about he wants everyone to love him. He wants everyone to just think he's hilarious, to think he's great. He doesn't want to offend anyone. He wants everyone to love him. And his wife asked him to go pick up this bible from this priest. It's a gift the priest has given her in their Catholic family. She says, can you pick this Bible up on the way to the club? And he's like, sure, honey, I can do that. And he goes to the priest and it's one of these ginormous Bibles, right? And it, it looks like a little baby's coffin is what he says. It's so big, right? He goes, this is a temperpedic Bible, I think. And, and he has to go to the club with this giant Bible. And so people take pictures of him at the club, his comedy club, with this giant Bible, and then these pictures go viral, right? And his worst fears happen. He offends the Muslims, and he offends the atheists, and he offends uh, the homosexual community, and he offends, and then he goes on to a network show, and he says, no, 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 I was picking up the Bible from my wife, I actually, I even asked the priest if you could put it in a garbage bag for me. And then so he said, they go, so you want the Bible in a garbage bag? So then he offends all the right-wing people and all the conservative people, right? And his worst fears happen that he wants everyone to love him. He wants everyone to think he's clean, but then everyone realizes he's unclean. He's defiled. Then nobody wants him. Nobody likes him. See, this is inherent in the human condition, We want people to like us. We want people to accept us. We want people to think we're clean. We want people to think we're accepted. We don't want to be defiled. Now, to get this point across in the Old Testament that we're all unclean Okay? And we all have this desire to be clean. We, we recognize we need to clean ourselves up. There's something about us that's not clean. To get this point across, Moses and God gave Moses and Aaron in the Old Testament, he gave them this rule. He said this in Exodus 30 and again in Exodus 40. He says, for the priests, Aaron is the, was the priest that would go and stand before God and the people. He's the intermediary, right? He would stand before God and the people and What the priest had to do before he entered into uh, the temple, the tabernacle, was he had to wash several times. He had to wash his hair, he had to be baptized, he poured it over his head, he would have to go in and out and clean himself. Why? To get the point across that you are unclean, you are defiled, you are not fit to be in the presence of God, and therefore you have to clean yourself before you go in and offer sacrifices and, and burn incense and all this stuff and worship God. So God did, God told the people this in the Old Testament. But what we see right here, let's keep reading and then I'm going to build it out here. Let's keep reading. Verse three, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And it's really not properly. What it really says is they wash their hands in a fist. And what it's getting at is there's a ceremonial washing that they have to do, a certain type of washing. Keep reading. Holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't even eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Okay? So what's going on here is the Pharisees and the scribes, they took this one rule that God gave the priests. Hey, before the priests go in to meet with God, they need to wash. They need to be cleansed. The Pharisees and the scribes, they took this one rule that God gave for the priests and they made it into a universal rule with hundreds of other rules underneath it. So what they said is, everybody's unclean, and so before you eat, you have to wash like this. Before you shake hands, you have to wash like this. If you go to the market, you need to baptize yourself and take a whole bath. Okay? They had all of these rituals, and what um, they're called here is traditions. These traditions that have been passed down from cent- for, for centuries by the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. These traditions that were passed down. Now, Is washing bad, right? We're not reading, we're reading this like, okay, what's bad with washing pots and pans and washing your hands before you eat? Good hygiene's great, right? We're down with that. We're okay with that. But there's something going on here underneath these little rituals that is bad. See, the Pharisees had placed their rules what is called the tradition of the elders on the same level as God's word. God never told people you have to take three showers a day and you have to wash your hands this way and you have to do all this to be fit for my presence. God never told people that he told it to the priests only. So they had taken all of the, they'd taken one rule and made a hundred rules and they said, everybody's got to obey this. Everybody's got to do this to be clean. He didn't say that this was an oral tradition passed down by the rabbis. Now listen, we do the same thing today. God's word says, do not get drunk, right? Drunkenness is a sin. And then preachers get up on stage and say, drinking alcohol is a sin. Now that's not true. That is a man made tradition passed down. And I get really fired up about that because Jesus drank alcohol And for a person to say that drinking alcohol is a sin would mean, therefore, that Jesus was a sinner. And if Jesus was a sinner, that means he's unfit to be in the presence of God. That means Jesus is unfit to die on the cross for our sins. That when he went to the cross, he wasn't paying for our sins. He was paying the price for his own sin. That's not the case. See, if that is true, we have no gospel at all. The gospel says that Jesus was the son of God, that he was perfect, that he was and always remained perfectly clean. And therefore he was the only person who could pay the the price needed to cleanse sinners, to make sinners right with a holy God. If Jesus was a sinner then he died to pay the price for his own sins and he couldn't make anyone else right before God. See, the Pharisees and the scribes kind of had the same problem. So if you have these rules in your head that are equal to scripture, you have a real problem with Jesus. If drinking alcohol is a sin and then you come to the Bible and you read that Jesus drank alcohol and he was even labeled a glutton and a sinner, you have a real problem. The Pharisees have the same problem. They said, we know anybody who's anybody, anybody who's clean washes their hands like this, takes a shower like that, bathes like that. And now they're looking at Jesus and his disciples and they're not. They're not washing their hands. So what happens? Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Now, so they ask why. They're looking at Jesus. It doesn't line up with the the Jesus that they're looking for. They want a Jesus that comes in their way and obeys their rules, but Jesus doesn't do that, so they ask why. And this is where Jesus begins to get really offensive, Look at verse six. This is really one of the keys to understanding this text. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, this is interesting. Most of us probably know what a hypocrite is. It's a person who professes beliefs or opinions that they don't really hold. They don't really believe in order to conceal their real motives. But what is interesting is when Jesus used this term, it wasn't a term that was in common usage. It had a very specific usage. This is important. In Jesus' day, the word hypocrite had a specific meaning. It was a, it was a term that Jesus borrowed from the theater. Okay? Specifically, the Greek theater. The word hypocrite was the word used for actor. In the Greek theater, when they would put on a play, they didn't have many different actors. They had typically had a couple actors, and they would wear different masks. They would have this mask on and they would play the part. Then they would go in the back and then they'd come out with a different mask on. So when Jesus uses the word hypocrite, he's saying people who wear masks, people who act, people who play a part. Now listen, we said this whole text is about how to get clean, how to get into a relationship with God, how to be made right with God. Here's the first answer. For a certain type of people, for a moralistic, religious type of person, for these Pharisees and scribes, this is what they said. If you want to be made right with God, you feel a distance, you feel a disconnect, you know there's something wrong, you feel unclean. If you want to be made clean, here's how you do it play the part. Fake it until you make it. Work on the outside, change some behaviors. See, this is the way of all religion. Many people think Christianity is religion. I'm here to tell you it's not religion. The way of all religion is this. All you have to do is follow these rules. All you have to do is work on the outside, change some behaviors, change maybe some clothing. Religion is outside-in behavior modification. It's playing a role. It's playing a part. If you want to experience God, if you want to know God, if you want to be accepted by him, all you have to do is change some things on the outside. All you have to do is clean your act up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, start going to church, raise your hands in church. If you get real crazy, right? Read your Bible. If you want to be like even farther down the road, and super spiritual. Read your Bible like every day then maybe if you feel really intense, go to this thing called missional community where you're actually in a community of people trying to live out the gospel that you say you believe. This is outside in change. Just behave a certain way and hope that something inside is going to change. You feel empty? Do this and hope you're going to be f- full. You feel broken? Do these things. Hope you, get, you feel healed. You feel lonely, do these things. Hopefully, God's going to answer your prayers. Do these things on the outside and hope that God's going to do something on the inside. Jesus says this is hypocritical. He says it's acting. Religion is acting, it's hypocritical in its own nature. You think about acting, you get a script. You learn your character, you follow your lines, you go to wardrobe and get makeup and the clothes put on, right? You play your part. Being an actor is all about exterior changes. It has nothing to do with interior heart, right? Or very little to do with interior heart, what's going on in your heart. You go out on stage, you read your lines that you've memorized, you do your stuff, and then you leave. It's all about exterior changes, what's going on in the outside. And Jesus is saying religion is man's way of adjusting their life on the outside in hopes that God will bless them. So what do religious people do? Religious people change their language. I love it when I'm sitting next to somebody on the plane and, you know, he drops an F-bomb and does this thing and I says, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. And I'm like, that wasn't the first time I've heard the F-bomb, bro right but why because they cuz everybody assumes when you get religious you change your language right that's the first thing you do stop dropping the f bomb right so when you get religious you you change your language you change your clothing now this is true for any religion or almost all religions right you can, many times you can tell a religion by the way they dress head coverings not head coverings etc cetera, etc cetera. they change their behavior all in hopes that this will finally fix the distance they feel from God. If I clean myself up, if I change my language, if I change my appearance, then maybe I won't feel so disconnected from God. This is the way of religion, but this is not the way of Jesus. And you know what's frustrating is the way of religious. If you've taken this way, if if you walk this road, and you've taken this way of religion, you find out how frustrating, how unfulfilling it is, because religion has no power to change us internally. When he says here, he quotes Isaiah, and he says, you guys honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Right? You've you've been there, you've signed up for the thing, and then realize you got to go to the thing, and you're sitting at home, and your heart doesn't want to go to the thing. Oh, it's time to be on mission. It's time to serve. It's time to go give to the poor. And you're sitting at home and your heart's going, oh, I want to just stay home. Your heart is far from you, right? See, this is the problem with acting the part. When it's all outside, it has no real power. You can change your appearance, but you can't change your heart. You can't change what motivates you. It doesn't change us on the inside. See, when you play the part, Here's the thing. If you've ever acted, you know, when you go home, here's what sucks. I'm just going to say it like this about acting. You can play a really cool part. Listen, when Mel Gibson, right, he's William Wallace. You know what I would want to do? I'm like, I'm just going to stay William Wallace. Honey, I'm William Wallace from now on. I want you to treat me like William Wallace, right? Here's the sad thing, right? The paint has to come off. The war paint has to come off, right? When he goes home, he's playing a part and he lays down as Mel Gibson, not as William Wallace. And every actor knows that that's frustrating and that's exhausting because the, pers- the part that you are playing is more interesting than who you are actually. And every actor also knows this, that acting is exhausting because every actor is constantly criticized and judged. Why? Because you're judged based on your performance. And so every actor has two types of nights. They have the night where they come off stage and they receive the standing ovation and they killed it and they go home and they believe I am the best actor to ever walk this planet. This is what life is about. Finally, I was worshiped like I should be worshiped this night. They were bowing to me. Right. And they feel just elated. They feel on top of the world. Right there. What is that called? That's called pride. They feel proud. And here's the, the sad thing every actor also knows the other night when they forgot their line when they tripped and fell on stage when things didn't go well and they were booed or they were hissed or it was even worse dead silent and boring and they go to bed those nights see actors go to bed those nights despondent and an absolute despair and feeling worse than nothing and thinking, okay, I'm just going to quit acting. I'm going to just keep waiting tables. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I'm a hack. I can't cut it. I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. What people said about me all my life is true. See, there's two types of nights for an actor. Let me tell you this. The same is true for religious actors. You lay your head on the pillow at night and you have two feelings. Number one, I nailed it today. I read my Bible. I went to MC. I helped the old lady across the road. I am phenomenal. Jesus is proud to have me on his team. Or you go to bed like this. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I blew it today. I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. I did something I shouldn't have done. I responded in anger and hatred at my coworker. I yelled at my kids. You go to bed saying, how can I do this? I'm supposed to be a Christian. How can I behave that way? And you beat yourself up inside. See, why? It's an act. You've been performing. It's a religious act. It's outside in change. Now, Jesus is going to go on and explain a little more about what he's going to do. And he's going to use a a very very clear example. He says, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, what's Jesus saying? Listen to this. This is so poignant and important for us to understand. The Pharisees were taking the law of God, the Ten Commandments and some of the rules, and they were making them kind of manageable. But what they ended up doing was actually breaking the commandment, breaking the spirit of the commandment. Okay, so there's a way where it can look like you're obeying God. And in reality, you're breaking the commandments of God. That's what's going on. And look how they were doing it. For Moses said, this is one of the commandments. Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's a commandment. Okay, honor your father and mother so it will go well for you. But what they did, look at this. But you say, so here's what they did. Well, God says we need to honor our parents, okay? God says honor your father and mother, but this is what that means. And then they built out some little subcategories under that commandment. And this is one of them. Read it here. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. This is what he's are saying. All right. Honor your father and mother. What does that mean? That means, obviously, as you're a child, you respect them. They say no, you say okay. That's what it means, to obey your father and mother. But as they get older, honoring your father and mother means you don't, necess- you don't rely on the state to take care of them. You just don't throw them away. You are responsible for them. You love them. You provide for them. You know, I don't want to hear my parents say amen to that right now. <laughs> you take care of them, Right? That's what it means. Now, listen, this Corbin thing might not be so bad of an idea, actually. <laughs> this is what they said. This is what they said. They, the, the Pharisees said, oh, my goodness. We have to take care of our parents all the way into old age, and that's going to take our resources. It's going to take our money. It's going to take our time, and we're in the prime of our life. If I'm, if I'm focusing on taking care of my parents, I can't build my business, and I can't do my thing. So, listen, they, they created this little workaround called Corbin." it was like this, if you it, ded- and the priest did this surprisingly, listen, if you, if you say all of your inheritance goes to the church, you don't have to give it to your parents. What a nice, convenient little workaround, right? Listen, if you sign over your life insurance to the church, you don't have to support your parents. And here's why it would benefit them. The Pharisees and the, and the, and the religious leaders, they could use their resources all the way up until they die. And then when they die, whatever's left goes to the church. They wouldn't have to sacrifice during their thirties and their forties to provide for their family. Do you see that? So they created this little workaround. And what is the whole purpose of honor your father and mother? It's this, we are selfish people and we need a commandment to tell us to take care of people, to take care of our parents. We need that commandment to do that, to love our parents. This is what loving your mother and father looks like when you get older. It means taking care of them. It means providing for them like they provided for you when you were a child. But they created this little workaround that completely canceled out that law. Do you see that? How offensive that was. A mom and a dad, you know, they're at retirement age. They don't have retirement back then. They need to be taken care of. And the person goes, no, 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 I'm sorry, mom, but I'm giving it to the temple. What I should be giving to you, I'm giving it to God. Deal with it. Right? This is anti-love. This is breaking the commandment. Now, Jesus gets pretty feisty here. He says this, verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. He says your tradition canceled out the Bible, cancels out everything you think you believe that you have handed out and many such things you do. So he's just picking one thing. This many such things, there's a junk drawer. That there's all kinds of Listen, I'm going to say it's going on in our life right now. It's going on in our, We create all these little workarounds that this is what the Bible says and let's create a little workaround around that so I don't and this is why. Martin Luther tells us there's three things that the Bible's meant to do. Okay? Number 1, the Bible's meant to show us how to live the best life possible. Okay, if you just read the Ten Commandments, most people would read the Ten Commandments and go, I heartily agree with that. We shouldn't murder, right? We should honor our parents, right? We should love our neighbor. We should do these things, right? That's the best life to live. But here's the second thing the law does that the scriptures are supposed to do. It's supposed to humble us and convict us and show us that the best way to live, we break it every day. We We are selfish we're self-focused, we want our needs to met, so we do steal, right? We do lie because we want to stay out of trouble, and we want it to go well for us, so we think. So we break the commandment of God, and here's the thing. When you break the commandment of God, the, the scriptures itself are meant to point us back to the only way to be saved, and that's by God himself saving us. Because we're guilty for breaking the law. The only way we can be saved is through the grace of God, and that's given us in Jesus. And thirdly, the the law is meant to restrain evil in the world. It's just meant to restrain, general revelation, restrain evil in the world. But listen, this is what's going on here with religious leaders and with Pharisees. This is what every religion tries to do. Jesus says this. Jesus kind of adds to the law, okay? He says this. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's the first thing people say? Who's my neighbor? Who are you talking about? Why? We're looking for a loophole. Jesus says, love your enemies. We're like, whoa, what? What are we doing? We're looking for a loophole. He couldn't really mean my neighbor. Right? The one that has parties all the time and stays up late. The one who never mows his grass. Right? The one that yells at my kids, I have one of those neighbors. My kids just call him the mean man. Right? God couldn't be talking about me loving that person, so we create all these little workarounds. Oh, it's probably just the people in my family or all the people that I like. I just have to love those folks. We create these little workarounds. Why? Because we don't want to be convicted, we don't want the second use of the law. To come onto us. We don't want to feel condemned. We don't want to feel unclean. We don't want to feel defiled before God. So we lower the standards of the law to something that we can manage. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're lowering the law to something that is manageable. And Jesus says very clearly when you do that, you're rejecting the Bible, you're rejecting the Word of God. And He calls them hypocrites. You're actors, you're playing a part, you're reading from a script. It's not real, but this is where we get to see the way of Jesus. Religion is outside in. It's all about how you look and how you behave and how you act. But Jesus came to turn religion inside out. That's what he did. He he came to turn religion inside out. Let's look at verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Somebody say nothing, please hear this. There is no food. There is nothing that is on outside of you that by going into him can make them unfit for God. No matter what new diet is on the market. Okay. I'm not saying everything is good for you, but nothing is going to defile you. Okay. Jesus says this, keep reading. And when he, when he had entered the house and let, where that where I'm at? Yeah. The, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Whoa, verse 17. And when he had entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? What he actually said word for word there, he's like, his disciples come to him and go, we don't get this. Like, we don't eat pig. You know, we know that's unclean. We don't, we don't do this stuff. What do you mean all foods are clean? What do you mean there's nothing that goes on the outside that goes into a person can make them unfit for God? We don't understand this. And Jesus literally says, are you so dull? That's what he says to his apostles. Are you that dull? You really still don't get it. You still don't understand it. And this is going to be very uh, interesting when we read what happens next week. And I'm just going to I'm going to let the cat out of the bag because you've got this juxtaposition here, a really good, moral, upright, right-wing kind of individual this week. Next Next week, we have the opposite. We have an outsider, we have a pagan, we have a Gentile woman, okay, coming from the far left extreme. And the interesting thing is, when Jesus tells her a parable, she's the only one in the book of Mark to get it in the moment. An outsider, an unbeliever, a pagan. She's the only one to get it. And these insiders, he tells them a story and they're like, uh... They don't get it. So listen, there's hope for us. And there's some of us, I'm going to tell you this. this is, there's some of you, you've been in church all your life and you still are like, uh, you don't get the gospel. You are religious. People tell you you're religious. You don't see your own religion. You are outside in. You are performance driven. You go to sleep at night and you've you've obeyed your little set of religious rules so you feel good about yourself and you you ignore the, the majority of the other scriptures that would actually do what the scriptures are meant to do and convict you and bring you to the end of yourself and show you that you're not as good as you think you are. And I'm praying that your eyes would be open Now, for all of us bacon lovers, this is a good text, right? But there's a whole lot more going on here than just changing diets. This is where it gets really offensive, guys. Jesus is going to take everything our society says about us, what's wrong with us, and he's going to flip it upside down. Look at verse 21. I'm sorry, I left off at 18, didn't I? And he said to them, "Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see what whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his st- in his heart, but it goes into his stomach and is expelled, it literally, expelled, it literally means goes into his mouth, goes into his stomach, and goes into the latrine. It's literally what Jesus says there. right? He's saying, "Bread doesn't defile you." Pork doesn't defile you. You eat that. It goes into the stomach. It goes out into the toilet and it doesn't change your heart. It doesn't affect your heart. But verse six or verse 20. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Let me just stop here for a second. Religious people admit to things that things defile them. And they say, change what's on the outside. What defiles you? Pornography defiles you. Watching R-rated movie defiles you. Drinking defiles you, et cetera, et cetera. All these things defile you. So stay away from those things. Look the part, act the part, play the part. Religious. Now, people on the other extreme, they say, you know what? This is ancient. This is archaic. We know today, nothing defiles us. Nothing defiles us. Being defiled is all in your imagination. It's all just the hangover of being a Christian nation. There's nothing in the world that defiles you. Do what you want to do. Live the way you want to live. Jesus here confronts that. and He says, no, that's not true. There are things that defile you. The son of God says, there are things that make you unfit. So the answer isn't religion, you know, performance. The answer isn't, well, there's nothing that defiles you. We're all good and we're all happy. and We're all God's people. Let's all sing kumbaya. That's not the answer. There is things that defile us, but Jesus gets specific here. What defiles us? Let's read. Let's keep reading. 21. For from within, out of the heart of man. Okay, stop. Our problem, Jesus says, isn't our environment, isn't our society, isn't our friends or our neighbors. Our problem is our heart. It's internal. Now listen, when the Bible speaks of heart, it's not talking about this organ that pumps blood. Okay. This is very important. When the Bible speaks of heart, it's talking about the control center of the human life, the control center. It's talking about the heart, the mind, the will it's talking about your emotions, all your emotions, your thoughts, your desires, all wrapped up inside of us. It's the When he says the heart, it's talking about the center of our decision-making processes. It's our goals. It's our desires. It's our wants. So listen, this is what Jesus is saying. Every decision you make comes out of your heart. Your desires. It's been said like this, what the heart wants The mind rationalizes and the will chooses. What the heart wants, the mind rationalizes and the will chooses. This is how you make decisions, right? It's not just all mind power because many of us know, we know that is a bad thing to do. I should not do that anymore. And yet we do it. We choose it. We move in that direction. Why? Because our desires are bent. Our wanter is broken. And Jesus says here, this is the problem of your life. This is why you sin. This is why you feel defiled. This is why you offend people. This is why you're never happy. This is why you feel disconnected from God. This is why you feel defiled. Your control center is damaged. Paul in the book of Romans says, why do I want this thing, but I choose this thing? And I don't want to do this thing, but yet I do this thing. Why he's at war within himself. Why his wanter is broken. His will has been bent. His desires inside his heart is damaged. And it said, scripture says it's been defiled since birth. And let me just use this illustration. If the well is poisoned, everything that runs from the well will be poisoned, okay? If the reservoir is poisoned, all the creeks that run from the reservoir will be poisoned. Now listen, you can go to, and you can chase out all those reservoirs and you can or all those creeks and you can go try to purify all those creeks and you're gonna be exhausted. But if you go to the source, the heart, this is where the change needs to take place. Now look at this, look, look at what he says comes out of it. Twenty-one. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. I'm a pastor and I have evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. This is, the word literally is pornea. It's pornography. It's sex outside of marriage. Theft, we know what that is. Murder, we know what that is. Adultery, having sex with somebody who's not your spouse. We know what that is. Coveting, that means greedy. Greed comes from the heart, wickedness, deceit, just being a liar, deceiving people, sensuality, envy, it's a sin of the eyes, it's wanting something that someone else has, slander, telling rumors or lies about people, pride, and then foolishness, just acting fool, acting the fool. All these evil things come from within and they do defile something. They do defile a person. They make them unfit to be in the presence of God. Now, listen. I want you to hear this. Some of you, this is this should be absolutely revolutionary. Jesus isn't saying we do sinful acts. He says we are sinful people. Our hearts are the problem. Now. Very few of us really believe this. I have heard dozens of Christians say to me after they, maybe they they lied to someone and they were confronted on it. And then they say, but that's not what I meant. You don't know my heart. How many of you have had somebody say that to you? You've confronted them on something or they've hurt you, but that wasn't my heart. Jesus is saying, you don't know your heart. It is your heart. He's saying, you don't just do sinful things. We are sinful people. All of our problems are, they're not coming from our circumstances. They're not coming from our society. They're not coming from outside of us. They're all coming from our heart. I had people blowing up on Facebook this week. We had someone in Bettendorf, right? A 15 year old kid in Bettendorf on the news, stabs his older brother to death. And people commented, I can't believe this. I can't believe what happened here. What's our world coming to? What's our society coming to? Listen, what are you talking about? Have you ever heard Cain and Abel? Have you heard this story where one brother rises up and kills another brother? It's been going on for a long time. What's shocking is our ignorance to sin. Our ignorance to, you know, this is what's so shocking. Our society tells us this, the problems with environment. If you get good education... You'll solve it. Well, Bettendorf's some of the best educated, some of the best schools that we have in our Quad Cities. Well, affluence, if you get people to the middle class, you you raise them up to middle class and they're going to live better. Well, actually, it's, you know, the, the median income is higher in Bettendorf than any other Quad Cities. So what's shocking is our culture says if you lift up education and you lift up money, then people are going to get better. What's shocking is that's not true. Because you can't change the heart. Income level doesn't change the heart. Education doesn't change the heart. The problems are internal. The prophet Jeremiah, he says it like this, and I just read this in my devotions this morning. He says, the heart, in Sh- Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? That's what he says about your heart. Now, are you raising your kids to believe this? are you raising your kids like they're little sweet angels? And anytime a parent says, your kid slapped my kid, oh, no, she never would have. Right? Not my angel. Right? And then you're driving home and she's yanking your hair from the back seat. <laughs> like, you liar. Right? We're deceitful. From the get-go our kids have a deceitful heart from the get-go. And you know what, you know what Jeremiah does in the next verse when he says our heart is deceitful above all things, who can know it? He then goes on to say this, the Lord searches our hearts and knows our thoughts. Let's go back to my illustration. We feel unclean when we have an interview when we're on a first date, so we get all cleaned up, we all get washed up. But here's the thing that you know about that first date and you know about that employer. They can't see my heart. They don't know what I'm thinking. So when he says, why would you like to work here? Well, I just really feel like I could give back to my community if I worked here. Really think I, I could add to the organization. I could really help us impact our goals. And In reality, we're like, uh, you got better health care, and you make, I make more money. That's why I want to work here. Right Now, what if, or on the first date, it's even worse, the stuff going through your head, right? What if you were sitting down with someone who could read your thoughts and someone could read your heart? See, then we'd be convinced that a little soap and lather and deodorant couldn't clean us up because they could pierce and they could see in our heart and they could see the wicked thoughts that's going on in our heart and they could see the mean motives in our heart or the selfish motives in our heart. Jeremiah says, that's what it's like to be in a relationship with God because God, he's created us. He can see into our control center. He knows why we're doing things. That's why all the religious performance doesn't affect him. That's why he says, you can worship me in vain. You can smile and raise your hand and you can sway from side to side and you can confess your sins on screen and you can be far from God because your heart is not in it. This should concern us. This means Christians who confess and profess that Jesus is Lord, their hearts can be just as far as unbelievers, outsiders. Their hearts can be just as hard and just as wicked and just just as bent on selfish motives. See, the religious guy is doing all this stuff on the outside, but none of these things can really get upstream and fix the problem. None of these things can really get into the heart and change the heart. And so the religious person is really a pitiful person. They know they're defiled, but they can't get deep enough. They can't get to the source to really fix their problem. So they're constantly in fear of people finding out their sin. They're constantly in fear that they're going to be outed. Somebody's going to find out. They're sad because they come in and they go through the motions, they might go to Missional community, they might even have a fight club, they might read their Bible, but they are sad people because they're in constant fear that somebody's going to find out that they are a sinner. But, if you can say "That's true." I am a sinner. It's absolutely. Freeing. And listen, this is a key. Until you understand this, you'll never understand Christianity. You cannot act your way into Christianity. You can't act your way into it. There's not things you can do to get inside. Tim Keller uses this il- example or illustration. He says this When I see somebody who's struggling to believe the gospel, I ask them this Are you a Christian? And he says, many times they say this, I'm trying. And he says, as soon as they say that, I know they don't get it. They don't understand the gospel. I'm trying. That is outside in. That is I have good days and I have bad days. I'm really working hard at this thing. I'm hoping God's going to accept my service. I'm hoping when I get up to heaven, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and I'll be a pretty decent guy and he'll let me in. That is not the gospel. If our hearts are the problem, hear this. If all of our thoughts and desires are infected by sin, that means even our best deeds are still corrupted. This led Isaiah to declare, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Your best service, your biggest financial gift, your most generous, loving thing that you do, it's all still infected by sin. Think about that. Your Bible reading, corrupted. Your tithing, corrupted. Your attendance, corrupted. What do you mean? How can it be corrupted? We come to these things. Some of you are here just because you don't want your missional community to call you. If I don't show up, somebody's going to text me and ask me where I was. I'm tired of that. That's why you're here. You're not here to worship the living God. That's a corrupted motive. God sees your heart. Right? Now, well, this is pretty depressing. Yeah? But let me read from Ephesians 2. So what what do we do? If all See, this is why it's life-changing, guys. If God just wants me to do a few cool things, good things for him, then it's a lot of pressure on me and I I have to constantly keep that up. But if I learn and I I come to the scriptures and I see everything I do is corrupted by sin, I'm sinner in the inside, in the heart. There's nothing I can do to change my heart. Well, what do I do? What do I do? This is what we're supposed to do. Look at verse, I'll just read it to you. Chapter two, verse four of Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Dead in our trespasses. That means we're spiritually dead. We're unable to do anything to commend ourselves to God. We're unable to clean ourselves. Dead in our trespasses. We're dead on the table. God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And then he raised us up with Jesus and he seated us with Jesus in heavenly places so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What in the world? The word of God is meant to level us. It's meant to crush us. It's meant to us to see the wickedness of our hearts that we're unable to do anything good to commend ourselves to God. Why? So we cry out to the God who is a God of mercy a God who sent his one and only son to obey the law perfectly. Jesus never disobeyed the law. He loved his neighbors. He shows us how much he loved his neighbors by going to the cross and being nailed there and the ones killing him, he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Why does he, why does he say here that all foods are clean? Because he makes them clean. Jesus Christ is turning all religions on their head right here in this passage. He's saying you cannot act your way in to a close relationship with God because all of your acting flows from a bad heart. If you want to be near to God, listen, if you want to be near to God, you got to let Jesus act for you. See, Jesus was perfect. All of his actions flow from pure heart. Jesus, even though he was pure and clean and undefiled and in a perfect relationship with God, Jesus took your sin upon himself on the cross. He took your sinful heart to the cross in order to kill it there and resurrect it and give you a new one. And when you put your faith in Jesus, that new heart is placed in you through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that you are born again. You get a brand new heart. That's why I said that the diagnosis is worse than you thought. There's no climbing your way out. There's no working your way out. That diagnosis is our hearts are desperately wicked. All of our deeds have traces of sin in them. That's what it means. We are sinners. But if you can accept the diagnosis, if you can accept that, you can stop acting. You can stop trying to play the part and earn God's forgiveness. And the remedy is better than you ever imagined. Trust Jesus, put your faith in Jesus and his performance. His perfect life gets credited to us. I want you to think about that. For those of you who are working hard at trying to uh, earn God's forgiveness, if your deeds, even your best deeds, have sin in them, that means you're trying to make a deposit. But every time you make a deposit, you do a good deed. You're actually taking a bigger withdrawal because there's sin in it. Do you hear that? So good deed, oh, sin in it. Good deed, bad deed, bad. You're going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. But when you place your faith in Christ, his perfect standing with the father gets credited to you. So your bank account gets full of his righteousness. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see how much you're putting in and how much you're taking out. He sees how much Christ has put in. Christ's blood has forgiven you, has credited you with the righteousness of Jesus. Now, man, Jesus was defiled on the cross so that you could be made clean. Jesus was separated from the father so that you could be brought near. Jesus is our salvation. And the more you can admit your weaknesses and the more you can turn from your own attempts to make yourself clean for God and the more you can embrace the one person who lived the clean life for you, the more you will realize God's amazing grace to you. The more free you will be to openly admit your weaknesses, openly admit your sins and your faults and your failures. Listen, for those Christians, for Christians in here who say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah," you know you believe this. You know you believe the gospel. When someone confronts you or challenges you, and your first response isn't to get defensive. Your first response is to say, you know what? I know my heart is deceitful. I know my heart is depraved. And I might not be seeing things clearly right now. Let me pray about that. Let me ask my community about that. Let me talk to my fight club about that. Let me meet with my pastor about that. Is that what you do? Hey, I think that was really selfish what you did. You don't know my heart. The Christian, you see how this is incredibly freeing. This is absolutely incredibly freeing. See, religious actors are always worried about their appearances. What will people think if they find out? Find out what? That you're a sinner? Newsflash, Jesus has already outed you. He pretty much said this on the cross. This is how bad you are. Nothing can save you but my crucifixion and death. You can never be good enough. You can never obey enough rules. You can never go to church enough. You are so bad, the Son of God, who's perfect, has to die for you. That's how bad. Jesus couldn't just say, Hey guys, everybody come to me. I'm going to baptize you. That'll be good enough. You'll be clean. Hey guys, I'm going to give you communion. Take communion. You're going to be clean. Jesus had to die to make us clean. So what are you worried about? What are you worried about? I'd like to pull up this week's confession. We publicly confess our sins every Sunday. Why? Because we want everyone to know Outsiders and insiders alike that we are sinners. That's one a part of our identity. That's what the scriptures say about us. And most of us aren't good at repenting. Most of us aren't good at admitting our faults. We like to say, oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. But we don't want to get down. You know what? I sinned against you because I'm proud. You know what? The reason I brought those... <laughs> The reason I'm bringing cheap stuff to the missional community is because I'm greedy right that's why I'm greedy I want to save the good stuff for me at home so I'll bring the Coors but I'm going to keep the micro brews in the back you guys can't have it and if you like Coors I, I'm sorry about that <laughs> you have bad taste in beer <laughs> I can't help you there Now listen, look at our almighty God who knows all and sees all. He knows our hearts. We confess our constant striving for righteousness. What's he saying? Acceptance and approval from sources that leave us empty. The approval of people, I just need everybody's love and affirmation. Oh, power, I gotta get more money and more success because I gotta feel power. Whatever those sources are, they leave us empty. Acting, playing the religious part, we go to bed at night, we're empty. We ask your forgiveness and we renew our hope in Christ alone. Who offered himself to appease your wrath and forgive our sins. We find all comfort in his wounds. And we have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice who renders believers perfect forever. What are we doing here? What are we trying to do? We're trying to teach you not just to repent of your deeds, but to repent of your damnable good works. The good things you do. You might have came here this morning just to feel better about yourself. Using God like a crutch. You might have came here this morning just to get the missional community off your back or just to check off a to-do list and feel better. Our hearts are deceitful. We want to repent, not of just our bad deeds, but our our bad motives that are inside our good deeds. And then go to the the, uh, absolution. This is the absolution, where we want to hear what God says about us. When we put our faith in Christ, he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all. When When it says all... God exists outside of time. He means your future uncleannesses as well. Everything you have done, you are doing and you will do when you put your faith in Christ is washed clean, wiped clean. And from all your idols, everything else we worship, I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what only Jesus can do. No other religion offers you a new heart. They offer you new behaviors, new outside things to do. No religion offers you a new heart. Only Christ offers you that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen, if you're a believer in here and you go, I've put my faith in Christ, but I feel like I still got a broken heart. Yeah. Here's the reality. When you be, before you become a Christian, you really only have one heart, and it's pretty unified. When you become a Christian, it's like you have two hearts. And you still, you have this old sinful flesh that wants to go one way and then you've got this new heart that pushes you towards righteousness and pushes you towards community, pushes you towards the gospel and there's this battle at war within you. But like I said, when God God exists outside of time and God says when he comes to set up his kingdom, when he comes back or when we die and go to him, that old heart is completely removed from us and we have nothing but a new sinless heart to live in community with him forever. And by faith, that's already taken place. But we're living in this age where it's, we're, be, we're in between his first coming and his second coming. So we live with this kind of dual nature, let's say. Do, these two hearts that are going on inside the same body. And that's why you can wake up one morning and feel on top of the world and you can wake up on the next morning and feel like you're down in the dust. Now, as I was like, this is it. I'm closing right now. I want, I want. This, this does a lot. If we really understand this truth, when somebody confronts us about our sin, the first thing we should say is, you, you might be right. We have, we have that kind of humility. The second thing, if you're an unbeliever in here, if you're an outsider, we can admit you might be more moral than we are. You might be a better person than we are. You might be serving your city and volunteering and giving more money to the poor. You might be doing those things. We admit that. We, we, we're free. Christians aren't necessarily the best people on the planet. They aren't. They're sinners who recognize their need for grace. That's what they are. Jesus says the prostitute is closer to the kingdom than the religious person. That's what Jesus says. So we can admit that. And third, Christian. If you're in this room today... There's a hymn that says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. You're striving, you're effort, you're working hard. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. When the spirit comes in and he gives us this new heart, he changes our motivation. He does spur us on to love and good works. He does push us into missional community. He does cause us to be radically open with people. He does send us out into the city as missionaries. We do behave. We do perform. We do all these deeds, but it's out of a new heart. It's not for his approval. It's because we have his approval. It's a big difference in that. And when we come to this meal this morning, that's what we're remembering. That everything needed for our salvation has already been accomplished. And everything we need for life and godliness has already been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so when you come and you eat this bread and you dip it in the wine and you're you're saying, God has covered my sin. He has made me new. I am no longer defiled because Christ has cleansed me. That's what this meal does. Let me pray. Father, this is an example where our culture is far removed from your opinion on things. We've been taught to believe that we're basically good, that the only reason we're bad is because of a lack of education or lack or, or poverty or outside circumstances come in and we and we mess up. But you say, no, no, no. Our heart is the problem. We've been bent since birth, sin is something that's in our veins, that flows to every act that we do, and that there's nothing we can do to fix our relationship with you. But because of that, you came to fix us. You came to redeem us. You came to live for us, to die for us, to resurrect for us, to send the Spirit for us. And right now, your Spirit is in this room, and for anyone who would believe these words of mine, your Spirit is at work in their heart, and you are washing them from all their uncleannesses, and you are putting a new heart within them. And I pray that you would do that work in this moment for your glory and your glory alone. And as we come to eat this meal, we would eat as forgiven sinners, as adopted sinners, as loved sinners. Father, we thank you for the work you've done to narrow the gap, to bring sinners back into a relationship with God. And I pray that joy would erupt from this, that true worship would erupt from this when we see the work that you've done to make us right. And true repentance would be produced by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.